500,000 Americans die from a deadly virus over a six-week period. Is this the latest thriller from Hollywood or a piece of American history? Today on ReachMD Book Club, I'm with author Gina Collada in her book, Flu, the story of the great influenza pandemic of 1918 and the search for the virus that caused it. Gina, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. How did the influenza outbreak begin in the late winter and early spring of 1918? It's hard to pinpoint where and how it began because this was during the war and there was not everybody was revealing what was going on. And it wasn't an age like ours where, where flu outbreaks are really, are really tracked. In fact, nobody even found, there was not even a flu virus that was identified. However, there was a sickness in Spain and that's for, for that reason, some people started saying that it was the Spanish influenza. But it seemed to sort of come in two ways. And actually what happened was it looked like there was an epidemic maybe starting in Spain, but then it seemed to sort of disappear, and then the next fall it seemed to start spreading around the world. It seemed to come to the U.S. on a maybe, possibly, likely on a ship that arrived in Boston. So somehow this flu had changed, I guess, in the trench warfare at World War I. Somehow there was some change from kind of the spring to the, to the late summer. Yeah, it seemed to turn into from a flu that was like an ordinary flu, which is not exactly benign, into something that was killing people and killing young people very quickly. The descriptions were really terrifying. All of a sudden, people's lungs would fill with blood. They would die almost instantly. In some of the army camps, they were describing bodies stacked up like cordwood. I mean, it was, it was as one person described it, it was like a terrorism attack with, a, with an influenza virus. So it returned to Boston in the fall of 1918. How did right. how did Boston respond to that? Well, you know, people were were real, people started getting really scared and started hitting the cities. First, it was in it was in Fort Devens, which was a um, an, which was a military installation, and then it started spreading into Boston and other cities. And it wasn't clear which city it was going to hit next. And when it, but people started. They were closing schools. People wore masks on the street. They were banning public gatherings. The, 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 the society was pretty much shut down as, because people were terrified. They didn't know what to do. There were all sorts of home remedies, which didn't seem to necessarily work. And out of nowhere, somebody would be healthy one day and dead the next. It was just amazing. It's hard to believe it was influenza. Didn't the Boston Papers talk about it being germ warfare? They did. They thought it was being spread by, in fact, there was actually even a, a myth that it was being spread by Bayer Aspirin Company, and that people did think it was the Germans that were trying to spread this flu. But there, there are lots of crazy theories about this, this disease, and you have to realize this actually was a time when people did not know that much about medicine. So it wasn't even clear. People thought, it, oh, we found the cause. It's a bacterium. I mean, they really didn't know. So how did it then kind of spread to New York and Philadelphia and kind of the rest of the United States? You know, it's, it, was, it was interesting because it's, it's hard to track how things were spreading, but it seemed to be jumping cities lots of times, too. It would be in one city, and then all of a sudden it would be hundreds of miles away. One of the most interesting stories that I heard was with, when I was working on this book was how it came to some remote villages in Alaska. Apparently it was being spread by a mailman who was, who was delivering mail on a sled that was pulled by dogs. And when he went to various villages, people would, get, would, would be exposed to this virus. And people who were in some of these villages, these remote villages, had never been exposed to any flu before. If you, if you had any 
blue experience, sometimes you have a little bit of protection. But people in some of these Alaskan villages had no protection whatsoever, and almost the entire village would die. It was an interesting flu because it seemed to hit people that were not normally susceptible, children and young people. So what was happening often was that in the village, all the, the parents were, would be dying, and they were burying people in mass graves in the Alaskan tundra. It was it was just an amazing experience, and what was interesting was spread by a mailman, apparently. Wow. And, you know, talking about it being kind of young young people, kind of pregnant mothers, you'd almost think that this virus had kind of been around before if it's if it just affected the young folks, if the younger folks were more at risk than the older people, which is different than our most flus. Right. That absolutely is one of the theories. I mean, it's very hard to know because you, how do you know what the virus was when no one knew what a vi- no one had isolated the virus and no one had saved old viruses? But there had been descriptions of something that kind of resembled this flu that could have affected some of the older people in the population. So the thought was that people who might have survived something similar might be protected and the younger people might be completely vulnerable. I mean, what was interesting about this flu, which makes it sort of really unusual, actually, was you'd like to say, well, what was that virus? How would we recognize it if it ever came again? And normally you would say, well, there's no way you could know. The flu is, that that epidemic is gone. Its victims are buried. How can you possibly find the virus when nobody saved anything? But it turned out that actually there were two sources of old old tissue samples, old virus samples that were sort of all broken up and beat up. So it's hard to imagine reassembling them like you reassemble a jigsaw puzzle. But what made this story particularly interesting for me is that researchers actually did manage to do it. One source was what um, somebody, some people have called the, a Library of Congress of the Dead. It was a va- it's a vast storehouse that was started by Abraham Lincoln. And military doctors would save tissue samples when they did operations or, or when they had patients, and they would just take the tissue and they they take these samples and they put them in little little tiny cubes of paraffin wax and just sort of store them forever in case anybody wanted to see them. And a researcher at Walter Reed had this idea. He said, well, what if there were some pieces of lung from people who died of the 1918 flu? Could I take the virus out of there? And the other idea came from a guy who had who named Johann Holten. He was a pathologist who had lived in this country for years and been really obsessed with this flu. And he had this idea that in some of these mass graves in Alaska, you might have people who were, whose bodies were still frozen because they were buried in the permafrost, and maybe you could get some lung tissue from them. He, he actually went to Alaska in the 1950s thinking he would get some, some tissues then, but the, the methodology was not good enough for him to do anything with it, and he was so naive he didn't even realize he might even be exposing himself to a deadly virus. He went back again decades later and got permission of the, pe- the people whose, whose relatives had been buried in that grave to open the grave again. He managed to get some frozen tissue, and he sent it to the same researcher at Walter Reed, Jeffrey Taubenberger, who then had two sources of the flu. He could compare them and say, was, this, was he really looking at the same virus? 
in those days, it was very hard. It was like the 90s. It was very hard to do the kind of DNA sequencing people do now. It took a long time, and it was, it was a mess because you had little tiny fragments of DNA, and you had to sort of put everything together. But Jeffrey Tappenberger actually did manage to get the sequence of that 1918 flu, even though you would have thought he was just working against impossible odds. And he managed to say, okay, this is what it looks like. The question now is, what made this flu so different from anything we've seen before or since? And how would we recognize it if a flu that bad came by again? Did they ever isolate which strain caused the pandemic? Yes, they did. It was an H1N1. You are listening to ReachMD Book Club, and we are speaking with Gina Collada, author of Flu, the story of the 1918 pandemic. So how do you think the pandemic in 1918-1919 impacted Gerald Ford's decision to recommend swine flu vaccine for everyone in the mid-70s? You know, that was actually what happened then was people were afraid that that virus was coming back because the idea was this resembled a virus that had been in pigs. And there was a soldier at Fort Dix in New Jersey who died of, of what looked like a swine flu. And they said, oh, no, it's the same. It's, it looks like that 1918 virus might be coming back again. It's a swine flu. We're going to make a vaccine, and everybody has to get immunized against it. So there's this enormous campaign to immunize everybody against swine flu with this big fear that the 1918 virus is coming back. Well, it turned out that the virus that had infected the soldiers at Fort Dix was not particularly deadly. And the whole swine flu vaccine program turned out to be a fiasco because a lot of people said that they had gotten sick from the vaccine. They said they had gotten Guillain-Barre syndrome. As I reported in my book, there's a lot of question about whether the, the vaccine actually caused anything like that. And no swine flu, and no flu vaccine since then has caused anything like that. But it scared a lot of people off from, from flu vaccines. And it led to this, this in, enormous problem for the vaccine makers who were being sued. And it made people back away from vaccines in the, in the future. Now, when we had an H1N1 epidemic a few years ago, did you kind of know in all this say, huh, this kind of sounds familiar? It started in the spring seemed kind of mild, changed, was affecting young people. What were your thoughts as a, as a history buff? Well, you know, once I wrote this book, I, I started to get, gain new respect for flu. I mean, you start to realize that, that, that influenza can be really deadly, and we, don't exa- and we still don't know exactly why or what to do about it. But I'm kind of an optimist, and also I'm kind of a person who likes to deny risk, so... I mean, I always think, okay, you get a flu vaccine, you've done the best you possibly can, and what's the chance anything like this would happen or that it would affect anybody I know? But it's always scary. I mean, this book, when you start to see what happened in 1918, you realize things have changed today. We have some drugs that can slow or stop, slow the course of the disease, make you get better faster if you take them early, but they're not cures. They don't make the the virus go away. We have vaccines, but they're not perfect. So the whole thing is, you know, it's, it's a little bit scary. You start to gain new respect for this virus. So I think, and thank you so much for being on the program. I think this is an amazing part of American history to know that 500,000 Americans died over a six-week period, and a lot of Americans don't really know about this. So uh, thank you so much for being on your show. Please uh, give the book a read, and thank you so much. Thank you. It was wonderful talking to you. 